All right, well, let's get started. Uh, if you haven't already, take your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 15, chapter 15. We're looking at verses 12 through 19. Paul's going to start getting into the meat of his argument regarding the resurrection in 12, pretty much to the end of the chapter. Um, but let's uh, start with a word of prayer as we begin, and then we'll get into the passage. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, Lord, we thank you and praise you for who you are. Lord, you are worthy of our praise and worship. You are glorious. You are all good, all knowing, all powerful, worthy of praise and worship. And Lord, we know that we don't praise you as well as we ought, and we don't love you as much as we ought, but we do love you, Lord, and we pray that you will not only forgive us our sins, but continue to work in us and complete the work that you've begun in us, Lord. Help us to understand that we are saved in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, Lord. None of our works, none of our, none of our own fleshly efforts, Lord, can ever cause you to love us more or to accept us more than you already do in your son, Jesus Christ. And help us then to rest in that gracious and glorious truth that we are loved, that we are accepted by our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that you then take us and we are your works in progress, Lord. And help us then to be receptive to the work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our, in our lives as we then bear fruit for your glory and our good. Bless our study this morning and your word and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, sorry, chapter 15, verse 12. Don't go to chapter 12. We did that one already. We're not backtracking. We are all about forward progress here. <laughs> uh, unless I want to go back and look at something, that's okay. That's my prerogative, right? Uh, verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say, that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen." And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. My wife is looking at me. <laughs> and I know why she's looking at me. Because I, went with the, I read this passage uh, Wednesday with the youth. And she says, but you stopped before you got to verse 20, which is the but now, right? And, and you all know that that's, those are my two favorite words in the Bible, right? But now, we'll get to those next week, and I'll, I'll slip it in a little bit at the end here. But I really want to focus on this unit here, verses 12 through 19, because this is really the fruit and, and the, the crux of Paul's argument regarding the problem in Corinth with the resurrection. Now, Last week, we did look at verses 1 through 11, uh, which begin this great chapter. Um, it's one of the mountain peak chapters in the Bible, I think. That's just my opinion. Uh, as I said last time, if, if I'm on my deathbed and you're there to read scripture to me, 
do not read from First Chronicles, any of the first nine chapters of First Chronicles. It's God's word, it's inspired, but give me something that's going to give me hope. Read to me from 1 Corinthians 15. That gives me hope. And the first 11 verses really set the stage for what the rest of the chapter is going to discuss. As Paul lays the foundation of what the gospel is. Right? He says he has delivered this to them. If you have New King James, it says, first of all. If you have ESV, it may say, of first importance. This is the most important thing that he delivered to them. The gospel, the, the core, the, the kernel of truth that is in the gospel. And it, is, it is found in verses 3 and 4. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That, in a nutshell is the gospel. Christ died, he was buried, he rose again. Right? And that, Paul says, that is what we delivered to you. That is what you believe. That is what you received. And then he goes on to say that not only did he rise from the dead, he was seen by many. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by the twelve. He was seen by over 500 at one time. He was seen by James, the brother of Jesus. Then by all the apostles. And he says at the end, last of all, by me, one who is born out of due time. Paul was the last to see the risen Christ when he saw him on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. And Christ converted him on the spot. And Paul says that he was the least of the apostles. And, and we looked a little bit at that. How Paul, you know, probably for his entire life, probably still had in the back of his mind that he was a persecutor of the church. That was something he took great pride in before he came to Christ. When he gives his resume in Philippians 3, he says, if you want to measure my zeal, if you want to measure how serious I am about my faith, I was a persecutor of the church. And that's what he says. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But then he goes on and says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul's like, look, I make no bones about who I am. I am what I am. Right? Uh, you know, I, I can't change my past. But what I can do is I can move forward knowing that in the grace of God, uh, his grace to me was not in vain. So he labors, he says here in verse 10, he labored more abundantly than they all. And then he says, but it wasn't me laboring, it was the grace of God working in me. And then he concludes the passage there by saying, therefore, whether it was I or whoever else preached to you, the gospel that we preach to you, verses 3 and 4, that's what we declare to you. That's what you believed. So that was last week. Now as we go into verses 12 through 19 this morning, Paul then looks at, you know, in verse 12, you see really one of the issues that the Corinthians had in the church. And we'll look at it a little more deeply. But essentially, what it boils down to is you had some in the Corinthian church that said, yes, Christ rose, but we don't rise from the dead. Okay, and we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more. And Paul's going to say, look, you can't separate the two. <laughs> All right, the gospel necessarily connects the two, that Jesus Christ was raised and that we will be raised as well. He is the guarantee of our resurrection. He is the promise of our resurrection. He is the, the harbinger of our resurrection. He is the first fruits, the firstborn from the dead. All these things Paul talks about in other places in the New Testament. talks about how if Christ is raised, then we too will be raised. You cannot separate the two. 
They necessarily go together, and he's going to prove that in this passage here. So as we look at these verses this morning, we're going to see this theme kind of come out, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to our faith. To deny it is to deny our faith. That's Paul's argument. If you deny the resurrection, then our faith just falls apart. There's nothing left to it. Right? If you deny the core, if you, I mean, it's really it's the foundation. right? It's like that if, if our faith is a giant Jenga tower, if you take out the block that is the resurrection, the whole tower will fall down. Because it, it, there's no faith without the resurrection. And that's what we're going to see here in three points as we look at verses 12 through 19. The resurrection is central, the resurrection is necessary, and the resurrection is our hope. I haven't done this in a while, so I'm just going to open up the floor if there's any questions from last time or as we head into this passage to see if there's any comments or any clarification that I can bring that I haven't brought already. You want to talk about 1 John 5, it says. <laughs> yeah, that's, we're not looking at that right now. <laughs> but there is a wonderful little question form in your bulletin that you can always write a question down and give it to me afterwards. Um, Okay, well then, let's move on. So first, we're going to look at verse 12. The resurrection is central. Where Paul again says here, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul has established the what of the gospel. That's what we looked at last week. The what of the gospel. The substance of the gospel. And he does that, as I said, so that he can then address the problem that is raised here in verse 12. And that problem is, as you see there, some among them say that there is no resurrection from the dead. That is what we see here. Some in the Corinthian church denied the resurrection of the dead. Now, perhaps some of them were from Jewish extraction, so perhaps some of them were still influenced by the teaching of the Pharisees, or sorry, the Sadducees. They're so, as, as the joke goes, right, you know why they're so sad? Because there's no resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see. You know, um, Yeah, uh, thank you. I'll, I'll, don't forget to tip your waitresses. I'll, I'll be here uh, all week. Um, <laughs> but in Matthew 22, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, this is Matthew's account of Passion Week, And Jesus is having these confrontations with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And basically everyone who was against Jesus was coming to him and challenging his authority and challenging his teaching. And it was like when one of them failed, then they tap out, and then they bring in the next group, and then they try to challenge Jesus. They fail, they tap out, then the next group comes in. So you have the Sadducees in verses uh, 23 to 33 of Matthew 22. And then, so we see that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And that's true. That was in the Mosaic Law, the Leveret marriage clause in the Mosaic Law. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, 
in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. So here they come with a little riddle to Jesus, thinking that they've got Jesus trapped in a corner. It's like, okay, so whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And of course, Jesus says, well, first of all, you don't even believe in a resurrection, so why are you even asking me this question? But secondly, he goes on and says, look, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection, now he says, okay, let's get to your real point, right? You didn't ask me about marriage in heaven. You asked me about the resurrection. So let's get to your real point. But now concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Now, one thing you need to understand about the Sadducees was their idea of Scripture was just the Pentateuch. They only believed that the first five books of Moses were inspired. The rest, I mean, not that they denied the other writings. It's just that it was the books of Moses that were, to them, the Scriptures. And, and Jesus here shows them, look, you have not read the Scriptures, what, what uh, was spoken to you by God, saying that I am the God of Abraham. This is, this is God speaking to Moses from the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in a sense, still live. They are with the Lord now, and that's what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees. And then when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So he completely floors them. So some of them were probably influenced by the teaching of the Sadducees that didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. More than likely, though, most of them were probably influenced by what was called Gnosticism. Have you heard that word before, Gnosticism? If, you're, if, you, if you look at it in, the, in, the, in, in print, it looks like Gnosticism because it's G-N-O-S, right? G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And this was sort of like um, an early philosophy in the late first century going into the second and third centuries BC. It was very much connected to the, the Neoplatonic philosophy. So you have Plato, and then you have Plato's followers uh, years later, the Neoplatonists, and they held to what is called dualism. So they had this, the world basically can be separated into two things, matter and uh, spirit or immaterial uh, stuff, right? And if you know anything about Plato, Plato felt that reality was in the immaterial world, that the material world was just a shadow or a copy of what was truly in the immaterial world. So the early Gnostic believers took that philosophy and ran with it. Now, it's not full-blown when the New Testament is written. You have early versions of it uh, creeping up. You see some of it in the writings of uh, here in 1 Corinthians. You see some of it in Colossians. You see some of it in 1 John. They're dealing with early Gnostic believers, particularly in John, because John makes a, a point in his first letter in chapters 4 and 5 that you cannot be a Christian if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And that was one of the teachings that the early Gnostics believed, that Jesus, because of their disdain for whatever was material, that Jesus appeared to be in the flesh. He wasn't really in the flesh. So it was not full-blown in the New Testament times. But again, two key things to know about early Gnosticism. I already mentioned this dualism. 
And this dualism, because of this sort of we don't care about the material, the body, it kind of had two um, results. It led to two results. One was hedonism. So if we don't care about the body, let's just live it up. Let's party it up, right? You see that in 1 Corinthians earlier, right? Where in chapter 6, they're like, hey, you know, sexual immorality can't be sin because you can't sin with the body. The body doesn't mean anything. The other f- result was asceticism. So if, we're not, if we don't like the body, we're not going to feed it at all. We're going to starve it. We're going we're to be ascetics. We're going to deny our physical impulses. And you see that a little bit in 1 Corinthians 7, where you've got people who are married, but they're going to abstain from uh, sexual relations because they feel that's sinful. And then the other key factor in Gnosticism is this idea of the gnosis, the knowledge. It's the key to salvation. It's finding out you know, your true reality. So anyway, when it comes down to it, they rejected the deity and the full humanity of Jesus. And one of the other things about Gnosticism, it was highly what we call syncretistic. That just means that they kind of, it was something you can easily fit into any kind of philosophy or religion. Okay, and there were early Christian forms of Gnosticism in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Now, why do I mention all that? Well, I mention all that because these are some of the influences you got going on in Corinth, which would lead them to deny the resurrection from the dead. Because if they have these Gnostic flavors in their thinking, why would I want to be resurrected in a body? If the body is not worth it, if, the, if material is bad, why would I want to be resurrected in the body, and that's what Paul is going to attack. Now, they presumably had no problem with the resurrection of Jesus. Why do I say that? Because in verse 11, they believed what Paul preached. What did Paul preach? Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. They believed that. So they had no problem with the resurrection of Jesus, they just denied our resurrection. And Paul is astonished when he hears this. Why? Because the resurrection, as I said, is central to the gospel. It is central to our faith. Again, look at verses 3 and 4. This is what I delivered to you first of all, which I also received. What is that? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's one message. (laughs) You cannot separate that into three parts and say, I don't like that part. I'll take he died for my sins, but I don't want the resurrection part. You cannot separate the two. All of it is the gospel. And if that was preached to them, which it was, right, verse 11, therefore, so we preach. And if that was what they believed and received, which they did, right, and so you believed, then it seems not to follow that there is no resurrection from the dead. They should should be able to connect the two. Resurrection of Jesus means the resurrection of the dead. Later on, we'll get to it, Lord willing, in two weeks. Look at verse three or 23. Sorry. Uh, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So here he's talking about the resurrection, right? Uh, for since I'm looking at verse 21. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ is the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. We've talked about firstfruits before. Christ is 
the, the proof of the, gospel, of the resurrection of believers. He is the, the, the first of the harvest. He is the promise of the coming resurrection. In Colossians 1.18, Paul there says of Jesus, who is, you know, he exalts the preeminence of Christ in chapter 1, talking about how in verse 15 he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then you get to verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. So he is the first one to... Now, he's not the first one to come back to life from the dead. Right? We know that, right? Jesus rose. He rose Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raised other people from the dead. Uh, the prophet Elijah or Elisha wrote, brought somebody back from the dead. But the problem was they were brought back into this life, right? They were brought back into normal fleshly bodies, and then they died again, right? Lazarus was brought back to life only to die again. Jesus is the firstborn of resurrection life. He is the firstborn in glorified life. He is the firstborn in spiritual life. So he is the firstborn from the dead, and there will be many brothers and sisters that will follow him in the resurrection at the end of the age. So he is the promise and the guarantee of a future resurrection of believers. And what Paul is stressing here in this, in this, in this verse, really, is the importance and the necessity of preaching the whole gospel. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again on the third day. You have to preach the whole gospel. So the resurrection is central. Secondly, verses 13 through 15, the resurrection is necessary. Now really, in 13 through 19, Paul is going to present two arguments, and he's going to do so in a form of argumentation called, and I'm going to throw a fancy Latin phrase at you, okay? You don't have to write this down. It's called a reductio ad absurdum, Okay? It's, just a, it's, a, it's a form of argumentation in which you assume the premise, or sorry, you assume the conclusion of an argument that somebody is presenting, and you show how that conclusion leads to all kinds of absurd uh, results. Okay, so it's, you know, to translate it into English, it's to reduce to the absurd. Right, so you assume the argument that someone is giving you, and you show how that leads to absurd conclusions. So he's going to engage in that kind of argumentation. He's going to assume the premise of his opponents, and then he's going to show how it's filled with problems and inconsistencies. And what is the premise? Well, the premise there is if there is no resurrection from the dead. So he's going to assume that. All right, let's just take your argument here. You say there's no resurrection from the dead. Let's assume that. And what does that leave us with? Well, that's what we're going to see in verses 13 through 19. But first, let's just look at verses 13 through 15. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So, he says, if Christ is not risen, okay, you say there's no resurrection of the dead, okay, let's assume that. All right, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then guess what? Christ is not raised. 
What's the problem? Well, the problem is that's the heart of the gospel in which they believe, right? Again, verse 11, we preach the gospel to you. What is that? That Christ died, he was buried, he rose again. We preach that, you believe that. If you say there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not raised. So now you're not believing the whole gospel. In John 11, we looked at this some weeks ago. John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me and dies will live again. The resurrection. Romans chapter 4, verses 24-25, Paul talks about how Christ has died and he was raised again for our justification. If Christ was not risen, then in a sense what that means is that then God did not accept his sacrifice for our sins. Right? Christ died as a sacrifice for our sins. And how do we know God accepted that sacrifice? Raised him from the dead, right? Your sacrifice was acceptable. If Christ did not die, that means that his sacrifice was unacceptable. Romans 8.11 is another good verse on this too. Romans 8, verse 11. Where Paul here says, But if the Spirit of Him, that is God, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That promise is void if Christ is not risen. Right? That promise just goes down the toilet if Christ is not risen. So that's the, the first problem is that the heart of the gospel in which they believed has been null and void. Everything that you believe now is, is worthless because you're saying there's no resurrection from the dead. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not raised. Secondly, Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then my preaching is vain. That word there, kenos, empty, void, it's, it's used in verb form in Philippians 2, verse 7, when it says that Jesus emptied himself, right? He took on the form of a servant. He was in the glory of God, and he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. It's the same uh, word usage there. And Paul is saying, look, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then my preaching is empty, it is useless. It is void. There's, there's no substance to my preaching if Christ is not raised. In other words, what are we preaching then and, and what are you believing if Christ is not raised from the dead? I'm just saying words then that don't have any, have, have any meaning if Christ is not raised from the dead. And finally, Paul says, look, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then he and other preachers are are actually putting themselves under the judgment of God, right? He says there in verse 15, then we are found false witnesses of God. In other words, we're violating, by preaching the gospel, if Christ is not raised, by preaching the gospel, we are violating the ninth commandment. Why? Because we're saying God raised him from the dead when in fact he didn't raise him from the dead because according to you, Christ is not risen because there's no resurrection of the dead. We become violent. It's kind of a perversion then, right? The preaching of the gospel then becomes a violation of the ninth commandment if Christ is not raised and if you believe there is no resurrection. Now, 
Atheists, right, and God-haters know full well that if they can sow doubt regarding the resurrection, that they can destroy the faith, and that's why they try to do that. Anybody here hear, hear of a guy named Lee Strobel? you probably heard of him. You guys know who Lee Strobel is and know his story? Uh, Lee Strobel was uh, a, an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune back when the Chicago Tribune actually did news, um, which was a long time ago. Uh, probably in the late 70s, I think, 70s into the 80s, I think it was when he did this journey. He wrote a book, uh, came out, I don't know exactly when it came out, like late 90s, early 2000s-ish, right? It's called The Case for Christ. So you may have heard that book, and he's written other books, The Case for Faith, The Case for Easter, The Case for Christmas, so on and so forth. And he kind of developed a whole ministry for this. But Lee Strobel was a dyed-in-the-wool atheist, and he was... You know, he was just one of those, he was like from Missouri, right? you got to show me. <laughs> I'm not going to believe anything unless you can show me. And he, he was married, and then his wife came to faith, and it drove him batty. And he's like, okay, I'm going to look into this, and I'm going to prove that this faith is, is false, and I can just shut her up, and then we can get back to our lives as normal. Right? So he dug into it, and he, he, was, he wanted to, basically he wanted to disprove the resurrection of Christ. So he went and he talked to scholars. He talked to biblical scholars, historical scholars, all kinds of people to look into the whole story of Jesus, his, his life, death, and resurrection. Now, you probably know where this is going, right? After the end of all this, he became a believer, right? He dug into it and it convinced him that it was true. He tried to disprove it, and, it, and, it, and at the end, he ended up being proved wrong. And he became a believer, and he uh, became a, a well-known apologist and defender of the faith because of it. But he knew at the beginning of his journey that if he can destroy the resurrection, if he could just prove that is wrong, then the whole faith falls apart. It's that Jenga tower. If I could take that one block out, the whole thing just collapses of its own weight. Problem was he couldn't take the... <laughs> He couldn't knock the Jenga piece out. <laughs> it was, in other words, the Jenga piece knocked him out, and he became a believer. Yeah. Yeah. Josh McDowell's another guy. He wrote a book, a popular book called, uh, what, More Than a Carpenter? Was, was one of those, yeah. Um, so, the resurrection is necessary for the gospel. Finally, the resurrection is our hope in verses 16 through 19. So he continues. Paul, this is sec Paul's second point in this argument where he is assuming the premise and showing how it's absurd in verses 16 through 19. So he goes on. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. So it's kind of a repeat of verse 13. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. So again, he repeats what he said in verse 13. If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not raised. Again, that same uh, problem, that same premise he comes with. Then from that he says, okay, then if Christ is not risen, then guess what? What is it that you believe? Well, your faith then becomes futile. That word there it's a synonym of the word vain before. It's just the same kind of idea. If Christ is not risen, then what have you believed, right? 
Because again, verse 11, we, you believe this message that we preached, that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. If Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You're believing in a lie. And if that's the case, if Christ is not risen, then guess what? You're still in your sins. Well, Christ died for your sins, but if he's not raised, you're still in your sins. That's that whole idea I said earlier, that that sacrifice of Christ was not received if Christ is not raised. You are still in your sins. Romans 5, verse 10. Again, this goes against everything Paul has preached in other places. Romans 5, verse 10, if we were, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So the death of Christ is, has reconciled us, and so much more has his life, because he has been raised from the dead. Romans 8, verses 33, 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elected? It's God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. If Christ is not risen, guess what? He's not interceding for you at God's right hand. You are still in your sins. Book of Hebrews, chapter 7. I'm looking at these other verses because this is a consistent message that Paul has preached and that he is, uh, you know, that has, and that many people have believed. Uh, in verse, verses 23 through 28 of Hebrews 7, here we're talking about how Jesus is a greater high priest. Also, there were many priests. So this is the Old Covenant, right? In the Old Covenant, you had many priests, right? The high priest, uh, you know, served as long as he lived. When he died, then his son took over. He became high priest. And you had just a long succession of high priests. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. That's kind of like obvious, right? If you're dead, you cannot continue as high priest. So you are prevented from continuing to serve if you're dead. But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If Christ is not risen, he's not making intercession for you. He is not a better high priest, because then he's like all the other high priests who have died and have not come back to life. The Gospel, again, verse 3 of chapter 15, is Christ died for our sins, and that he was And if Christ is not raised, it means that he was unable to defeat death and sin. It means that death defeated Christ. It means that sin defeated Christ if Christ is not raised. Second, if Christ is not risen, then all who died in the Lord are dead with no hope of resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 14, we read this a lot during funerals. How the blessed hope is that when Christ returns, those who have died in Christ will rise. They will come back to life. Christ will resurrect. In fact, they will be the first ones raised from the dead and and to meet Christ in the air. And if Christ is is not risen, then they are just dead. Right? There's no hope for those who are in dead. 
Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about how we can grieve not as those who have no hope. Well, if, the, if Christ is not risen, then we're going to grieve like everyone else grieves. That this life is all there is, and then when we die, that's it. Revelation 14, 13, blessed are those who die in the Lord. Well, why? Why would they be blessed who die in the Lord if there is no resurrection from the dead and if Christ is not risen? Those who died in the Lord are dead. They are gone. They're not like Monty Python, not quite dead yet. <laughs> they are dead, 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 right? They are really dead. And finally, if Christ is not raised, then Paul says we are the most pitiful people around. That word there, pitiable, is miserable. We become miserable. Why? Because we've hoped in a Savior who cannot deliver, right? We have hoped in a Savior who cannot deliver. If Christ is dead, he is not risen from the dead, then what are we placing our hope in? We're placing our, it's like any other human uh, figure that you want to follow. Muhammad, Buddha, all of them. They all died, <laughs> right? And their movements may go on, but the leadership has died. Christ is different from them because he is raised from the dead. But if he is not raised from the dead, then we have no hope. We are most pitiable. I mean, I know prosperity gospel likes to say, come to Christ and you'll have your dreams fulfilled, right? You'll, your coffers will be full, you'll be blessed. But think about the Christian life. I mean, I could go through many passages here. Paul suffered for the Christian life, right? The Christian life, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live godly lives will face persecution, right? So the Christian life is not a cakewalk. It is not a walk in the park. It is not a vacation at the beach. It is one of suffering. It is one of persecution. And, and if we're hoping in the Savior who cannot deliver, then why are we doing this? Paul is basically going to say, and he's going to say later, if that's the case, we might as well just eat and drink, right, for tomorrow we die. We might as well just party it up, right? We might as well close the doors to the church and sleep in on Sundays. One of my, I think this is my, Father's life verse, 2 Timothy 1.12. There's a song, there's a great hymn about it, but in 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul there writing to Timothy says, For this reason I also suffer these things. So he's suffered. Paul's talking about how he has suffered in the Christian life. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed, uh, committed to him until that day. Right? Paul's like, look, I, I, I trust my life in Jesus. Be, and, and that helps me to, to, to go through any and all of the, the trials and everything that I'm going through. And I'm able to do that because I've committed to my, my life to Jesus. Well, if Jesus is not raised because there's no resurrection from the dead, then, then Paul's lived a pitiful life because he has entrusted himself in someone who cannot deliver. He has laid his life in the hands of someone who is still in the grave. John 16, 13, Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room, says, in this world you will have troubles. And he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Not if he isn't raised from the dead. If, Je if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then he has not overcome the world. And then we should not take heart. <laughs> we should just live it up. And that's Paul's argument about the resurrection here. It's like, look, it is our hope 
The resurrection of the dead is based on Christ's resurrection, and that is our hope, and that is why we suffer the things in this world. That's why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4 and Romans 8 that he says that I consider the, the, the light momentary afflictions of this world to be nothing compared to the weight of glory that awaits me when Christ returns. If that's not the case, then there's nothing, there's nothing to hope in. But the point is, is that the resurrection is our hope for a better life than this life has to offer. It doesn't mean that we have to you know, kind of go through this life, oh, this is so bad. But it's, it's so much better <laughs> because Christ is raised from the dead. Right? That makes living this life easier. That makes going through the trials of this life easier, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead and that where he is, we will be also. So as we bring this passage to a close here, the truth of the Christian message is tied to the historicity and the historical reality of the resurrection. If there's no actual resurrection, then there's no hope in the Christian life. The faith is empty, it's void, you might as well give it up. And that, that speaks against also other Christian, I put that in scare quotes, traditions, that deny the reality of the resurrection, that try to turn the resurrection into a metaphor or an allegory or, or into a, like a morality tale. Right? If you, you're emptying the, the, the heart of the gospel when you do that. So the, the gospel message is central. It is essential to our faith. It is uh, necessary and it is our hope. If you deny the resurrection, you deny the faith. It is just so central to our faith. And that's Paul's point here. And I did want to make my wife happy here by at least looking a little bit at verse 20. All right, so you know, Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, Christ is not raised, and we are most pitiable. But then he's going to go on in verse 20 and say, but now. He say, look, Christ is risen. Right, that's, that's what he says. Look, it, I'm just arguing. I'm arguing your, your false premise. The truth of the matter is Christ is risen. Right, and, and because that, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you want to hear more, you've got to come back in two weeks. Next week is Mission Sunday, so I won't be teaching in Sunday school. But you have to come back in two weeks as we will look at verses 20 through 28, more than likely next time. But we're going to see that the argument that Paul, you know, he's like, look, you, your, your argument leads to absurd conclusions that basically work against your faith, work against your profession, and leave you with no hope. I'm going to give you the hope. Christ is risen, and that also means that we too will be raised from the dead.